Well, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews, book of Hebrews. Is everybody rested up? No. <laughs> Everybody's supposed to say yes, but Patsy's back there, no. <laughs> Well, I hope everyone's rested up because we're going to work a little bit. <laughs> Hebrews, have you, have you guys read through the book of Hebrews and do you like the book of Hebrews? Yeah. I, I tell you what, it's one of my favorite books, but it's also one of the most intriguing books. And by that, I mean it's a little bit mysterious and it may be a little bit hard for us to understand because it's written from a different perspective altogether than us Gentiles, right? So you know in the world there's only two kind of people, there are the Jews or the Hebrews and then the Gentiles. And so this book, which is written to the Hebrews, is written in a different language almost. It's, we, we really have to learn how to interpret this by putting ourselves into the lives of the Hebrews who are receiving this letter. I love preaching this book. Uh, I've learned to love preaching just anything from the Bible because really it's my opportunity to present the truth of God and the gospel in such a way that we love and honor him in all that we do. Amen? Amen. That's, that's my goal in the preaching is for you to fall so in love with Jesus that you will willingly do what he asks us to do and do it with a joyful heart. Now I think studying the book of Hebrews is going to help contribute to our joy and our satisfaction in Jesus, Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, even though this is written to the Hebrews, the focus of the book is Jesus Christ. <laughs> and in fact, it's Jesus Christ and him being better. And you might say, well, you know, better than what? Better than anything is really what the book of Hebrews is trying to tell us. He's telling us it's better than anything. You don't have to go back to your old way of living. Jesus Christ is better than anything. The book of Hebrews probably, for many of you too, maybe stirs up uh, feelings of um, maybe anguish a little bit or trepidation. Is that a word, trepidation? trepidation. A little bit of fear because it is known for some statements which some people take as refuting eternal security but we're going to see just the opposite is true about the book of hebrews it is one of the most solidly uh, eternal security books that we could ever have and so we're going to read a little bit of it here today but mostly to be honest with you today we're going to we're going to be talking a lot about the background and then as we go through the book of hebrews you'll be able to see was Rob right about that background and those assumptions that he made or was he wrong? So that's going to kind of how we, we take this. So let's go ahead and stand as we read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which to me sounds almost like the introduction to Star Wars, but it has even much more meaning, I think, than anything Star Wars could put out. But listen to these words. And the, the whole book of Hebrews is very elegant and uh, just fantastic to read. So it says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And already we can say, wow. <laughs> but let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us as we go through this, as well as some other scriptures. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to have an intact Bible here. 2,000, 3,000 years after some of these books were written. And yet we have the word of God before us. And that's exactly what our Bibles are, the word of God. Not my words, not anybody else's words, but the words from very, very God. And at first they came through prophets in the Old Testament. But most of the people of Israel rejected those prophets. And so you sent your very own son and he is the final word of God for us here today. And so as we study about Hebrews, we help, we hope and, and desire for you to show us Jesus in all of his supremacy and his sufficiency of his sacrifice so that we might forge ahead in our life with Christ today. And we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. amen. So the title of the book, your, your title in your book probably just says the book of Hebrews or Hebrews. Uh, really a, a more appropriate title might be Jesus is greater or Jesus is better, or Jesus is superior, and he is so in every way. So we're going to be going through a little bit of a background for the book of Hebrews, probably more than what we would any other book, because Hebrews is such a different book. It's, so, it's almost like it stands in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because it talks so much about the Old Testament, the Jews, the Hebrews, the way that they lived, the sacrifices that they had to perform, and we need to know the background to kind of put ourselves in their place, right? They had a completely different culture than the Gentiles of that day and, of course, of us here today. And so how do we interpret Scripture? Do we interpret by asking the question, what does this mean to me in my culture? And the, the answer to that is no. We always go to Scripture and we try to answer it by what the original author intended to convey to his audience. And so we need to kind of, for a few months anyway, as we go through Hebrews, learn to think like a Hebrew and learn to think like a Jew because that's exactly who this book was written to. The meaning of a text is what the author intended to convey to his original audience. So we can't bring the book of Hebrews all the way to the 21st century and say, well, this is what it means to me. And another person says, well, this is what it means to me. And another person says, well, this is what it means to me. And then you have three different, quote, truths that contradict each other. But we interpret the Bible just like we would hope our Supreme Court justices would interpret the Constitution, right? <laughs> this is where interpreting the Constitution came from. It comes from how we interpret the Bible. And so, not to get too political, but I think probably most people in here would think that it's probably reasonable to select Supreme Court justices who go back to the original text and interpret it based upon 
how the original authors intended for it to be understood, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't come forward or we don't even, you know, some Supreme Court justices would say, well, we need to go to France and see what they think about it. No, we go to what the original text says and interpret it that way. And if there's any commentary needed on that text, we go by the people who actually wrote it and understood it back in those days. That's what the Federalist Papers are, right? The Federalist Papers are this commentary on the process of writing the Constitution. And so we do the same thing with the Bible. In fact, that's, as I said, this is to interpret the Constitution is to do it the same the way that we do the Bible. We go back to the author. What did he intend to mean? And so we don't know the author <laughs> in the book of Hebrews. So we don't really get any glimpse from uh, who the author is. A lot of people have suggested a lot of different people. I've I just as early this morning, I read that Clement uh, might have written it. Apollos might have written it. Some people think Luke might have written it. A big part of Christianity believes that Paul wrote this. But there's inconsistencies with Paul and how he writes, his style. So we just leave it up to the fact that we really do not know. He was a Hebrew, right? We do know that he was a Hebrew. We do know approximately when it was written, and this is really good to know too. It was written approximately between 60 and 70 AD. 60 and 70 AD. Anyone know? You know, I usually don't do this during sermon. Anyone know why that might be important to a book writ written to the Hebrews? Tough question. It's a tough question. The temple fell around 70 AD. Right. The temple was destroyed by Titus of Rome in 70 AD. So this book was written while temple sacrifices, temple services were still ongoing. And that, that's going to tell us a lot about how to interpret the Bible. And, uh, and so whoever the author is, he's writing with that perspective. And so when he says, when the author says, Jesus is better, don't go back. Don't fall backwards. What's, what's he talking about? He's talking about don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the old temple system. And that's, that's going to be something that's critical uh, in understanding a lot of the texts that we'll talk about. It was, of course, written to a group of Hebrews who had heard the gospel and maybe some of them have believed Christ. I don't think that everyone who read this letter or this, actually it's a sermon probably, who read this were believers. And I think in some instances the author took that into consideration that there might be people who read this who are not believers in Jesus Christ. And so it was written to a group called the Hebrews not to a specific church like Ephesians or 1st, 2nd Corinthians, not to a specific person like Titus or 1st Timothy, but it was written to a group of people who are named the Hebrews. So we have to figure out who are the Hebrews. <laughs> the Hebrews are the Jews. It's another name for the Jews. God's chosen, favored people in the Old Testament and we could name some, right? All we've got to do is go back to the Old Testament. We can name Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau. Uh, we can name David, Isaiah, John the Baptist. Even the 12 disciples were Hebrews. And Jesus was a Hebrew, right? 
Jesus was a Jew. He was in this line. They are the people of the nation of Israel, freed from slavery to Egypt and given the promised land in Canaan. So we've heard that story, right? People were bound in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and finally God desires for them to be free of Egypt and go to the promised land. These are the people that this letter is addressed to. They're also the people of the covenant of the law of Moses. And so on their way to the promised land, God stops at Mount Sinai and makes a covenant with these people. And it's based upon the Ten Commandments. He gives them Ten Commandments to live by. And then we kind of stop there sometimes, but the covenant doesn't end there. There are stipulations. There are qualifications. Uh, there are ways that the people are supposed to respond to that covenant as well. And this was all part of the covenant that the Hebrew people made with God through Moses. And also during this time, another thing that's very important to uh, our study of the book of Hebrews is there were a couple structures, one called the tabernacle and one called the temple. So anyone know the difference between tabernacle and temple? Yeah, the tabernacle was a tent, basically, that was portable. So uh, after the people were uh, freed from Egypt, they went to the promised land. They sent in spies. Uh, ten of those spies came back and said, these guys are huge. There's no way that we can conquer them. Only two people, uh, Joshua and Caleb, said, yes, we can take them. And God said, well, because you're disobedient, you're going to have to circle around in this desert for 40 years until that disbelieving generation passes away. And then the next generation can go into the promised land. Well, all of this time in the desert, every time since they fleed from Exodus, God still wanted to be with his people. And the tabernacle was the way that he was able to be with his people. When they would stop and camp, they would set up this tabernacle. They would present sacrifices and the Shekinah glory of God would descend and sit upon the mercy seat. We read about the mercy seat, I think, in the Revelation song if I'm not sure, mistaken. But the glory would come down and the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant would rest upon there and they would know that God was with them. And then when they got up to move, another pillar would lead them out during the day, the pillar of smoke. And so, and then the, the temple is just the permanent structure that Solomon had built in Jerusalem. And so those are all part of this Hebrew culture. Also the priesthood, all of the animal sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple would have both been places of much blood, much death of these animals, all for the sacrifices for sins. And it really represents the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he would do for us. Another important part of the temple sacrifice was the Day of Atonement, right? The Day of Atonement, one day during the year when a priest, one priest, would get to go into the Holy of Holies. So if you look at the temple, there's the outer court, there's the holy place. It's like one building called the holy place. The first portion of that was called the holy place. And the second most inner part 
separated by a veil was the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant held the Ten Commandments and Aaron's uh, rod that had budded, uh, manna, and I can't remember what else. But so, uh, so yeah, on the Day of the Atonement, they would send this one priest in. First, he would perform a sacrifice of an animal before himself to cover his sin. He would go in there. Tradition says that they would tie a rope upon his foot in case he was found to be without, with sin. He would die in front of the uh, Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. They'd have to pull him out. Uh, so this was a, a fearful, fearful and important thing, this Day of Atonement. Uh, how did the people do with this covenant? Not very good. Not very good, no. They didn't do very good. They loved the blessing part where God would bless them. They loved that, but they were not good at making God their God. Time after time after time after time. They would sacrifice to God but then they would go to the high places and the high places in the promised land were areas where Baal worship still took place, where there were what they call Asherah pole that they would sacrifice to the goddess of fertility and the god of fertility. They, were, they had divided hearts, much like their kings, much like Solomon had a divided heart, uh, Saul had a divided heart. And so God says with this people of Hebrews, I will make a new covenant with them, which will be for them, but will also be for all people. And we know this new covenant as Jesus coming to die on the cross for our sins. And he instituted the new covenant during what we now call the Lord's Supper, the Passover Seder, where he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. This is my body, the bread, which is crushed for you and that was the institution of the new covenant and so the hebrew people were excited about that but they were also excited because god had promised that they would have a messiah they would have someone who was anointed by god who would come overthrow rome set up a kingdom on this earth and they were expecting a political leader what they missed out on is Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53 talks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ like 600, 700 years before he was crucified. They forgot that Jesus would have to come and suffer for sins first. And so this kind of brings us up to the situation in the book of Hebrews as it's being written. All those things have taken, have taken place. And now we're kind of in a transition period, right? So if this was written about 60 to 70 A.D., it's only been about 25 years since Jesus died and was rose, rose from the dead. Not that long a period of time. Now for the little kids, that seems like forever. For us that are in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, it doesn't seem that long of a time. But the get this, <laughs> the Old Testament sacrifices are still being performed. The Day of Atonement is still being observed. The, the temple is fully functional. And yet Jesus has come. He's died on the cross. 
and he's instituted this new covenant and he's instituted a new kingdom. And so you have people who are faithful Jews performing sacrifices and we know that the sacrifices themselves do not atone for blood, but their belief in the Messiah to come does atone for their blood. And then you have these new people coming along, these new Hebrews who have heard about Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross and they've accepted him and they are no longer giving sacrifices. So this is what I call a watershed moment in history. And so I think there's probably some special things that have happened during this time that will help us inter interpret the book of Hebrews. But it's a watershed moment in history. There's never been anything else like this where one covenant is fading away and the new covenant is ascending and becoming predominant. But there, during this 20, 30 year period, there's gonna be people caught, right? Some have heard, some have not heard, some have heard and not believed, some have heard and believed. And so just keep that in mind because we need to understand our audience. There's going to be people who read this letter of the Hebrews that are true believers, and most of them have been persecuted for their faith. So the audience that this author is writing to, they have been persecuted for their faith. Let me just read in Hebrews chapter 10 some of what's been going on. And the author says, you know, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, in other words, after you heard the gospel, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treat, those so treated. For you had compassion for those in prison. Some of the people, Hebrews, had actually been put in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I'll probably come back to this big time. What a, what a tremendous statement to say. They had joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So these people that this author is writing to have been persecuted. There also may be people that hear this letter or read this letter who merely profess Christ but are not truly saved. They profess Christ, but they didn't possess Christ, right? We've, we've talked about that before. And so my understanding is that these people who receive this letter, are, are, they're being tempted. they're being tempted to avoid this suffering due to persecution, right? No one wants to endure persecution. So they're, they're being tempted to move away from what's causing that persecution. They're, to, they're tempted to return to what was comfortable. And so, so many times when we read several of the different warning passages in the book of Hebrews, from our Gentile perspective, it looks as though they are going back into sin in the, in the fact of some kind of uh, sin. But that's not the case. They want to go back to Judaism. Does that make sense? <laughs> I think that's really key in the book of Hebrews. 
when it talks about them falling away, it's talking about them not going into a life like a Gentile would live where they are totally bankrupt and corrupt. They're just talking about, I'm going to go back to, to Judaism where it's easier, where Judaism was an established uh, religion in the Roman Empire. It was, it was totally allowed by the Roman Empire for them to have their animal sacrifices. Christianity, on the other hand, had not been recognized as a legitimate religion, and so they were suffering persecution. So they were tempted to do those two things. Here's another thing they were tempted, I believe, to do, and that's that their assurance of forgiveness, they wanted to place it back on the sacrificial system. And I'll, I'll tell you just a little bit in just a little bit why I think that's true. But they were just like us. When they sinned, they wanted to have a clean conscience. Don't you hate it when you know you've done something wrong and you feel that guilt and it weighs upon you? They're, they're just like us. They didn't want to feel that feeling. They wanted, to, they wanted to feel and have their conscience cleared so that they felt innocent and washed clean. But how could they do that when Jesus had already come and died and now he was no longer there to repeat the sacrifice? I think this was their mindset. Their mindset was, well, in the old days, if we committed a sin, we just took a sacrifice to the priest and they offered it to us and that cleansed our conscience from our sin. But with Jesus, he's already died and been raised from the dead. He can't come back and die again. I still feel guilty. I don't feel cleansed. Of course, they misunderstood that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. But these are the kind of mistakes that they were making. And the thing of it is, is it sounds very familiar to life even for us today. Even though we are Gentiles and not Hebrews, we want to go back sometimes too, right? We know that we're saved by grace, but when we sin, we have a tendency sometimes to try to make it up by doing good works. Just, just exactly what the Hebrews would want to do. They'd want to go back and perform the old sacrifice, give the old tithes. We want to go back and feel like we can deserve our forgiveness by, uh, by doing good works. Okay, so let me go into this just a little bit more detail on these temptations. The Hebrews were tempted to avoid suffering due to persecution and they would do that by denying Christ. And they were experiencing persecution because Christianity was not a recognized religion by Rome. Christians acknowledged only Jesus as Lord, not Caesar, right? So in the Roman Empire, you were expected to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Christians couldn't do that. They could only claim Jesus as Lord, and so they were suffering persecution. Christianity was causing a stir within Judaism causing unrest. We've talked about this before too, the Judaizers who would come around and say, well, we can count these people as believers if they will uphold the law, if they will be circumcised. And we talked about that in the book of Galatians that no, salvation is by Christ alone through his grace alone. And so how does this apply to us today? And when I say apply, I'm not saying it has a different meaning. The meaning is the same. Christ is sufficient. 
but we do apply things differently and it does apply to us today because we're finding more and more today that Christianity is not favorable in the eyes of our culture. Amen? Amen. We can see that coming. We've seen it coming for a while. I first wrote this part of this probably seven or eight years ago, and that's what I wrote then. We can see that the culture is turning against us, and we're going to be experiencing more and more persecution because of that. When we confess Jesus as the Lord, we're opening ourselves up to ridicule by the rest of culture. At every corner, it seems like we are encouraged to compromise our principles, right? Whether it's about marriage or sexuality or gender identity or even entertainment. Any of you seen uh, a series called Anne with an E? It's good, isn't it? It's good. I told Darla we were watching it. We were maybe halfway through it. And uh, it's all about Anne of Green Gables, in case you hadn't guessed about that. And just the delightful girl that plays the part and a really good actor, really good storyline, really good writing. And uh, so we were really, really enjoying it. And then all of a sudden, they bring in a subject that is not in the original books. And, and the fact of it is, is that one of her relatives is a lesbian and uh, has, a, has a lesbian partner. And, you know, I was just telling Darla, I said, I'm so thankful for this show because this before this happened. I'm so thankful for this show because it's got, you know, um, no bad words, no nudity. It's kind of set back, you know, in older times where things were simpler and just a really good kind of family show. And then they bring this up for several different episodes. And it's clear, and that in fact, I did a little research, uh, the people who wrote it, yeah, this is, this is intended to push an agenda. And so I'm not saying not to watch it. <laughs> uh, just take in, in, mind, you know, take in mind that our culture is trying to mold us into its image. Uh, they're trying to condone what is clearly wrong in the Bible and say that it's right. And there's places where we can be tolerant, but there's places, some places where we just can't go, right? There's just some places where we can't go. We can't compromise on marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. There are two sexes. There are not, you cannot pick your gender. It's, it's what it is when you were born. Uh, and so we're going through some of these same, thing, same things that the, the audience in the book of Hebrews are going through. It's not hard to imagine, I write here, that persecution is only going to increase. I'm not a prophet in the sense of being able to foretell the future, but I think all of us, at least for the near future, is going to see that it's only going to increase. And so we might be tempted to do the same thing the Hebrews. Why wouldn't it be easier just to go back? Why wouldn't it be easier just to compromise? Why wouldn't it be easier just to fall in with the rest of the crowd and avoid this persecution? Would be easier, right? Wouldn't be right, though. <laughs> wouldn't be right for us to give in to it. Wouldn't be right for us to be quiet about it. 
We need to speak the truth in love and tell people what the Bible says about what is right and what is wrong. Jesus himself suffered for us so that, and if he suffered, surely we will suffer in persecution as well. Because we know Jesus Christ and his ways are better, we can endure suffering and joy knowing our future is secure and we will be able to be with him in a better place someday. It's not about this lifetime, right? <laughs> it's, hard for, it's hard for me to even say because I love to have great times. I love vacations. I love my hobbies and I love all those things. But it's really not about this life. It's about the life to come. And so the Hebrews, they were, turned, they were tempted to return back to what was comfortable. The Jews had a very structured environment. Living by the Spirit is not necessarily always structured, right? But living by the law, living by rules, regulations, temple practices was very comfortable to them. They were comfortable with the temple and how it worked. And uh, they knew, you know, when we read in the book of Levit Leviticus, it's all Greek to us about how what you're supposed to bring for a sacrifice and what's it for, they knew it. I mean, the, the priests, they knew it and they knew how to do it. They were comfortable with it. So they, they wanted to go back to a structured environment, the temple, the priests, their offerings, and they went back to do, 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 do as a means of salvation because they felt comfortable with that. All of us are that way. Grace is so amazing, it's hard for us to believe that he has done it all for us. But he has done it all for us. Amen. That's what we'll learn in the book of Hebrews. There's nothing that is required for salvation that he didn't provide for us. Amen. And so we want to be self-dependent and we want to be comfortable as well. We gather our material things around us, our familiar surroundings and sometimes we never get out of that box and step out in faith to do God's will. The author of the book of Hebrews says that the comfort that we have in Jesus is better than any comfort that the world can give us. It always will be better than any comfort that the world can give us. I mentioned earlier the Hebrews desired to have a conscience free of gift, and this may be a little bit repetitious, but how can I be sure that my sins are forgiven? We are tempted to have this same doubt as well, right? How can I be sure all my sins are forgiven? Well, under the Old Covenant, it sounded something like this. This is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. The preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. That's the holy, of, holy place. But into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing. So they have a problem. They have a problem because they misunderstand Christianity. Their consciences are not free. Since they have sinned, since Jesus offered his sacrifice, they are feeling, I need to do something. I need to go back and offer a sacrifice because 
Jesus is not here to offer sacrifice for me. They misunderstood that Jesus' sacrifice is good once for all. So put yourself in their position. Christ has died for your sins. You have sinned after Christ has left and gone back to heaven. You might feel like I need to offer another sacrifice. So they go back to the temple. This is the great going back that's talked about in the book of Hebrews, I believe. But Jesus is a better sacrifice of a better covenant. Listen to the contrast. This is also from Hebrews chapter 9 as well. But when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation, he entered once for all into a holy place, not by beings of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus is a priest without sin. He offered his sacrifice in the heaven of his own blood. He presented that to the Father. It was accepted, and Jesus rose from the dead, telling us that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. Jesus' better sacrifice means that those who place their faith in him can have confidence their sins are forgiven and have a clear conscience before God. Amen. <laughs> And so we'll get into those a lot more when we actually get to those parts of the chapter. But I'll close by saying this. When difficult, difficult times come, we should not be tempted to go back. There's nothing there for us. In fact, that's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, if you want to go back, you can go back, but there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins because the old covenant has passed away. You've heard about the New Testament. There, there's no going back to that old one. It's no longer in effect for you. So don't be tempted to go back. Don't be tempted to go back because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all our sins. Jesus is better. Don't go back, but look forward to Christ and his kingdom. Amen. Amen. So I look forward to examining each and every week Jesus and who he is, his supremacy over all things. Next week we'll be talking about how he is the creator, how he is supreme over even the mightiest of God's created messengers, the angels. And uh, yeah, it's going to be wonderful. We, we serve a wonderful Savior, don't we? Amen. No one could ever provide everything we need for our salvation like Jesus has provided for us. And so we should worship today. In our closing song, uh, we'll have a time of worship. I think we're singing Just As I Am. And so it's also a beautiful hymn to draw us into a closer relationship with Christ. And you may have strayed away from him for some reason, not as close as you once were. And so I like the term, keep short accounts. You know, if you've never heard that term before, it just means 
when you feel distance from God or when you feel some kind of uh, lack in your life, then you don't have to deal with a guilty conscience. You keep short accounts by going back regularly to Jesus and saying, I goofed up again today. Will you please forgive me? And that forgiveness is there each and every time. And so if you feel like you've strayed from God, uh, make that right during this psalm of invitation. Let's pray and then we'll let the Holy Spirit do his work. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for just the beauty of this book. And we just begun to start. And I pray that you would help us to go through this together and if we miss a Sunday that we watch it on TV and pick it back up because we need to do this together. We need to see it together and we need to experience it together. So be with those today who don't know Christ. If they don't know Christ, today's the day of salvation. Give your heart and soul to Jesus Christ. You will never regret that. If we are Christians here and we need to rededicate our lives, then let today be the day when we do that. Help us to rejoice in the salvation you have given us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.